I've had a chance to meet you. My name is Herrick, and I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to our Sunday gathering. And if you are new, we have been journeying through the book of John for the last, I don't know, forever, it seems like. Uh, we have been at it since uh, May of 2018, and we are through just about 13 and a half chapters. So we are on our way, and um, we've been basically looking at the life of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what it means for our lives, how he changes everything and makes us new. So we're going to continue that this morning. Um, before I do, I'm going to go ahead and pray and ask for God's help this morning. Father, thank you for this morning and for the privilege that it is that we get to gather here around your word, and we get to hear from you this morning. I pray that you would speak through me this morning. I pray that it wouldn't be out of like a sense of strength, but really just out of weakness. Like I'm, I'm needy, and, and I've met Jesus, and he has met me in my need, in my brokenness, and I pray that this morning there really would be a freedom in this room to own our own neediness and our own brokenness, and to move forward with him, trusting him with our lives. And I pray that that would be the path to the good life. So I pray that you would speak this morning. Fill me up, spirit. Open up ears and eyes and ears in this room to receive what you have to say. We love you. We thank you. Let's your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so as I was, I've had a lot of time to think about this morning's message. And to kind of set it up, I want to tell you guys a quick story. So, uh, for whatever reason, I, like, just love learning about how and why things happen the way they do. If you have ever, what's that? Oh, so somebody's already laughing. Cause, oh, because I'm a five, yeah, from the Enneagram. If you're not in, into the Enneagram, forget I just said that. Uh, so, I love learning about how, how and why things happen. I love podcasts, so if you've, maybe you've heard about this podcast called Dr. Death, it's like, how did this charming, good-looking, Orange County doctor, like, butcher and kill people? Uh, why did that happen? How did that happen? Fantastic podcast. <laughs> I guess I didn't expect that to be so more. <laughs> We're just getting going. Um, I also loved, um, did anybody w- listen to the Serial podcast? Serial, okay. A bunch of hands going up the room. If you haven't heard it, it's, I think it's on season, they've got three seasons now. And it's looking at the criminal justice system. It's taking a look at a really messy murder case of a high schooler in, uh, I forget where it was, on the East Coast, I think in Baltimore. And it's like this really sketchy trial went down and somebody was convicted and it's basically like revisiting it. And it's like, how did this happen? How did the system get to be this way? How did, uh, how did somebody get convicted with, with such sketchy evidence and alibis? So I got to love learning about the how and the why. Recently, I've taken more uh, of an interest. This one is pretty morbid about how, how and why airplanes crash. Uh, so I'll just own that. It is morbid. And the truth is, I'm a nervous flyer. So it's actually really helped me because now I know air travel is super safe. And so I fly better uh, now because of that. But I want to tell you one specific story uh, about a crash. If you can hang with me for a second. <laughs> I know we're going, we're starting here, it's going to get better. Uh, back in the late 70s, somebody, somebody in New Zealand had this genius idea. They, they introduced these airplanes that could travel a lot longer than they used to, so they can go a lot farther. And somebody in New Zealand was like, you know what we should do? We should go to Antarctica on a plane and do a sightseeing tour. 
And people were like, sign me up. I will pay big money to go see the penguins and go see the fjords and the, uh, the mountains that you can't even tell are mountains and the ice, whatever. Has anybody been to Antarctica? Okay, I'm doing, this is a Puerto Rican trying to describe the frozen tundra. <laughs> and so basically, long story short, these were like kind of pleasure cruises. Uh, you would leave New Zealand in the morning and you'd be back for dinner and you will have traveled through Antarctica. It's amazing. I think it's amazing. I don't know. And basically, it's like you got a tour guide. One of the tour guides was this guy who like climbed Mount Everest or something. Like You have this, these fascinating tour guides. They like pour you cocktails. It's a party atmosphere. And it's, that, that was how you could spend a day back in the 70s if you wanted to. And so one day, there was a flight that took off from New Zealand in the morning. It was a fairly normal flight. But they encountered some, some challenges along the way. There was low visibility, so they couldn't really see all that well. And so they were kind of trusting in the navigation, the plan that they had in place, the navigation plan. And it would actually fly them kind of over this frozen body of water called the McNurda Sound. And that's what the pilots expected. That was what was programmed into their plane. But because the conditions were bad, they were kind of trusting this plan. They did not know that the airline had changed the flight plan that morning. So where they were is not where they expected to be. And so long story short, because of the conditions, it was cloudy over, it was basically like very low visibility. It's Antarctica, so it's just, it's whiteout conditions. There's, like I think about our mountains here, you can kind of see like there's a little bit of snow on top and then you see mountain, right? There it's, it's just snow from peak all the way down to the bottom. And so the visibility is bad. You just can't see it. I think it's called, what was it called? It's called a, whatever, doesn't matter. A whiteout. It had a more technical name. Again, Puerto Rico tried to explain this stuff. Mount Erebus was what was in the path. They thought they were flying over this uh, frozen fjord, and they ended up flying into a mountain. So they received a warning from the plane that was basically like, pull up. You're getting close to the mountain, but by then it was just way too late. And so, yes, very morbid interest. This is not like light listening, but I listen to these podcasts and I learn a ton. But I was thinking about this. Why do I mention this story this morning specifically? I think there's something here for us. Because if you know the way, you can navigate through anything. And if you don't know the way, all bets are off. And that's true of flight, and I also think it's true in life. And the truth is, we experience complex and difficult situations that are confusing and disorienting in life all the time. Whether it's finances, relationships, some of us have done things that have left us guilty and ashamed. Some of us have had things done to us that has left us ashamed and guilty. Some of us are just wrestling with career questions. We're confused about where we're going with our career, with our family, with our parenting, with the church, with this church in general, or the church in general with this church specifically or the church in general. We need a way to navigate through the difficulties we face. We actually need a plan. And here's the crazy part. As I was thinking about this, there is a flight plan, in a sense, that's programmed in by Satan, by sin in the world. It's a bad one for us. It's one that's ultimately about self. Relying on self, trusting in self, lifting up self. And it leads to destruction. It leads to ruin. 
Today we're going to read a story where Jesus faces essentially the most difficult terrain life has to offer. He had to deal with betrayal, personal betrayal. It's the story of Judas. But we're going to learn how Jesus navigated through these really difficult moments in his life. And, how, and we're going to learn how it can actually shape us to be his disciples in the midst of it. So if you haven't already, turn over to John 13. You probably haven't because I don't think I've told you. John 13, 21 to 30. We're going to be here this morning. And I'll start with this real quick. Uh, I love movies. Besides just disturbing podcasts, I like movies. And my favorite types of movies typically are the movies that are based on true stories. If you have a movie and it starts with like the following events are based on a true story, I'm in. Anybody else with me? Dakota is. So some of my favorites like Glory. Who here's watched Glory? A few of you guys. It's this amazing story of the Civil War. It's like think Civil War, the height of the war, there is an all-black regiment that fights for the Union Army. It basically turns the tide of the war, and they pay the ultimate cost and sacrifice. Based on a true story, amazing. Apollo 13, who's watched that one? Yeah, a bunch of you guys have. The world anxiously watches three astronauts in a busted ship try to stay alive and come home. While like NASA's, NASA, NASA, struggled with that one for a long time. NASA (laughs) is trying to bring them home. Uh, Cinderella Man, does anybody watch that one? Oh my gosh, the everyman fighting for his life in the midst of the depression, literally like he's a fighter and then he's fighting for his family in the midst of the depression, just amazing. Back to the Future, this wild-eyed scientist. True story, okay. I just want to make sure you guys are awake. Okay. So I love movies based on real life and here's why, they speak to our experiences. They speak to our human experiences and they help us see life in a fresh way. And so they show us that life requires a certain level of toughness and tenderness to make it through, to make it through life's challenges. And this morning, we're going to read a real-life story. For some of you, it will be very familiar. Some of you will have heard it preached probably many times or maybe even read it. So I, I set this all up to say, don't let the familiarity lose you, take you out of the room because it's familiar. I promise you, if you stay with me, you'll see it in a fresh way. So if it helps you, the following is based on a true story. John 13, 21 to 30. Here's the context of what is happening, in case you're new, weren't here last week. Jesus has just done something remarkable. He's embraced the role of a servant. What did he do? He got down and he washed his disciples' feet. So in, in that moment, we see a humble king who serves his people by cleansing them, by washing them. It's a beautiful moment, but guess what? Not all is well. Jesus says, you're clean to his disciples, but what does he say? Not all of you. He says, you're servants like me, but what does he say? Not all of you. And then he says, I am the way to the Father. What's Jesus saying? I think he's saying, one of you won't let me wash you or lead you. This is to his closest disciples. One of you won't let me wash you or lead you. And to reject me is to cut yourself off from the God who sent me. So this is heavy. Maybe it's appropriate that I started with a plane crash, in a sense. Get us in the room. 
This is heavy stuff. Let's read verses 21 to 30 because this is a crash. We're about to witness the crash of a disciple. He's going to destroy his life. Verse 21, John 13. Here we go. When Jesus had said this, he was, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples started looking at one another, uncertain which one he was speaking about. So Jesus just raised the stakes as high as they'll go. He just went all in at the poker table to find out who's bluffing. Who's bluffing? Who's actually not a follower? Verse 23, one of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was reclining close to him. Verse 24, Simon Peter motioned to him to find out who it was he was talking about. So he leaned back against Jesus and asked him, Lord, what is it? Now, this, this is a tense moment. Imagine if you're in a room full of people you know, a room full of people you love, a room full of people that you've served alongside. Maybe it's not that hard. And it's not just anybody. It's Jesus' 12 hand-picked disciples. They are the Navy SEALs who were sent out on high-stakes missions into the ancient Near East to advance the kingdom of God. And then one of them was just about to, to sell our loving leader down the river. This is a big deal. This is awful. Who is it? Whoever it was has a really good poker face. Did you notice? They don't know. They're like, who is it? I don't know. You would think it'd be easy, right? Everybody like, Judas! <laughs> I've known about you. They didn't know. They didn't know. He had a good poker face. He wasn't showing. Verse 26, Jesus replied, he's the one I give the piece of bread to after I've dipped it. So not everybody heard this, but Jesus is telling his disciple that he loved. So when he dips the bread, gives it to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, poor Simon Iscariot. Every time, hi, my name is Simon Iscariot. Yes, that one. The rest of his life. Judas, Simon Iscariot's son. Verse 27, after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Satan entered him. Let those words sink in. This is one of the people who got to witness three years of Jesus' life and ministry. And it says, Satan entered him. Jesus, after Judas ate the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Jesus told him, what you are doing, do it quickly. Jesus is 100% in control in this moment. Even though he's being sold up, up river or down the river, whichever way that goes, he's totally in control. None of those reclining at the table knew why he had said this. They didn't know. They had no idea. They just thought, well, Judas is our treasurer, so maybe Jesus told him to give a little money here or there. Maybe buy something for the festival, give something to the poor. Verse 30, after receiving the piece of bread, he immediately left. Don't miss this last part. And it was... Night. Oh, it was night. Judas was with the light of the world for three years, and he loved the darkness more than he loved the light, and he left. Some observations. Jesus 
throughout this whole story. Think about, Tom and I were talking about this earlier. What would be some, a natural reaction to somebody, you know, betraying the Lord of glory? I don't know, strike him dead right there? Smite him? For whatever? Yeah, off with his head. It's him, guys. Yeah. Do your thing. Beat him up. Shame him. Get him out of here. No. To the very end, Jesus treated Judas with kindness, with dignity, with utter respect. That little morsel, it was a final act of hospitality given in love. He treated Judas as an honored guest. That's what the commentaries say. Jesus loved his enemy, but Judas rejected his love. And we know this, like it's possible to reject Jesus' love in such a way that we actually give Satan influence in our life. If you read Ephesians, uh, it's not going to be up here, but Ephesians 4, 26 to 27, Paul basically says, unprocessed anger can open the door to Satan in your life. And he tells the Ephesians to allow the gospel to lead you from anger to forgiveness and kindness and love, the same kind that you've received. So if we reject his love over the course of time enough, it gives Satan space. It's just a reality. And then, finally, Jesus treats others in a way that honors them to the very end. He honors their choice. Now, here's, here's the thing. Jesus, even though he was completely in control, he was, if you're right, taking notes, he was troubled. It says that Jesus was troubled. And we're going to spend some time thinking about this and chewing on this. Jesus felt troubled by the brokenness around him. So Jesus didn't bottle up his emotions. He wasn't uh, self-sufficient. Like, I have to suck it up, or I got to deal with it, or I can't show weakness. Instead, he was honest and open. Some of the commentaries I was reading said it cost him to get it out, to get the words out when he's, refer- when he's talking about Judas. He wasn't invulnerable. He wasn't stoic. He didn't feel the need to hide his emotions or even bypass them. He allowed himself to feel hurt, to feel and to hurt. What's my point? Jesus in this story makes it okay to not be okay. You can write that down if you'd like. It's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. This is hard. I have struggled with this forever. I got to thinking, uh, middle school, worst time in life, I think, for everybody, fair to say? 12, 13, 14. Um, seventh grade, I got picked on. It was a hard year. I think I mentioned this before. Um, my ethnicity, which hadn't really come up as like a big thing before, came up as a big thing. And um, kids, I got at a kid who was putting bags of beans in my desk so that when I'd open it, there'd be bags of beans in there. And then they'd laugh. And I, just, I went through like a really ridiculous growth spurt. I was probably this size when I was 12. So I also got called an oaf and an ogre. And it bothered me. Here's the thing, though. I'm not, I'm not a, an, an innocent victim in this story. I bottled up my emotions. I wanted to look strong. I did not want anyone to know you can hurt me. I didn't want to look weak. Outwardly, I was invulnerable. Kind of laughed it off and shrugged it off. But inside, I was really hurt. And on two separate occasions, a kid, me, who I used to get, like, um, I used to get award, whatever the citizenship awards were, I got into two fights that year. And it was hurt coming out. 
And I didn't believe that it was okay for me not to be okay. I had to deal with it. I had to suck it up to not let them see that I was weak. It's the way of the world. The truth is I felt powerless. And when I got angry, I felt powerful and in control. Bashing someone's face and has this weird way of doing that. Hence the fight club later and all that stuff. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry. <laughs> I need to, compa- I really, but as I thought about it, I like processed this. I think for the first time in my life, I processed this. I invited God, I invited God into my pain. And here's what, here's what the conversation went like. I'm, only op- I'm sharing this with you to give you hopefully an example of how this could look in your life. I, as I was crying out to God, I told him, I need a compassionate friend to ask, are you okay? And I needed to know that it's okay to say, I'm not okay. Let me tell you why. I also needed an empathetic friend who could deal tenderly with my wounds. Someone who understood what it's like to not be okay and not add hurt to the wound through their response. I needed a wise friend who could help me see, hey, yes, you've been hurt, but you've also taken matters into your own hands. And it's only gotten worse when you bash that kid's face in. I needed a gracious friend who wouldn't condemn me, but would help me own my part and receive forgiveness. Who did I need? Jesus. I had no idea how badly seventh grade me needed Jesus, except that I still need him today. This has not changed. Here's the crazy part. I was in church services every week. I went to a Christian school. I had zero clue how the pain of the gospel connected to my life, how his pain connected to my pain. His suffering felt totally irrelevant to me, completely. Maybe you're here and that's true of you. And if that is, I just want you to know it's a safe place to say that. I didn't realize that Jesus identified with my pain and was crushed by it so that I wouldn't be. I didn't know that his death was for sin. I didn't understand that it was for my sin and for the sins of those who hurt me. I had no idea that his death was meant to bring peace into personal relationships. I had no idea how to draw the gospel, draw application into my life from the gospel. I had no idea that by nature I was Jesus' enemy. None. And that he treated me with such kindness and love that he would even die to forgive me for taking matters into my own hands, for bashing a kid's face in, because I was angry. I had no idea of any of that stuff. So how did I respond? The way of the world. I processed things from within my own resources. The way forward was show no weakness, hide your pain, press on. And I didn't address it or heal. I didn't address it, and there was no healing. I was hurt and I hurt other people. And I'm confident of this. Maybe the details of your story are different, but I'm sure you can relate in some way. How many of us today are hurt, confused, upset, sorrowful, and feel pressure to be strong? To feel pressure to look good? To feel pressure to like, with your life say, I'm okay? Is it okay for you to not be okay? Serious question. Is it okay for you today to not be okay? If it's not, I have good news for you. Jesus was troubled by the brokenness in our world and our relationships. He knows what it's like to feel hurt. He knows what it's like to feel betrayed. He knows what it's like to be abandoned. That's what Judas was doing in this story. And he's extending his love and compassion to you today. If he loved Judas, he loves you. No question about that. 
I was a herding sheep without a shepherd. But what did Jesus do for me? He looked for me. He found me. And maybe you're here today and you're starting to realize, like, he's looking for me too. He's able to find me. And as I was preparing for this, I just got this picture of, like, him picking up his little lambs and holding them close. Like, you can bring him your pain. Even if the world rejects you, he won't reject you. He's humble and gentle, and you can receive his love today. Jesus' words, these are famous words, but he said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take, your, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus was okay with not being okay, and you and I can be too. Can we be a community that's okay with not being okay? In our gospel community meetings, is it okay if we're not okay? Is it okay to bring your bad day with you? Absolutely. In fact, I would say bring it so that you can find grace and rest for your souls through Jesus. Jesus, though, he wasn't just okay with not being okay. He wasn't just openly honest about his emotions. He knew what to do with them. He absolutely knew what to do with them. So my first point, he was troubled He was okay with not being okay. Second point, though, is that he trusted in the midst of it. He trusted in the midst of it. Jesus felt deeply, and yet he wasn't controlled by his emotions. His emotions just revealed his internal world. And unlike ours, his was perfectly ordered. I'm convinced that if we could peel back the cover of Jesus' internal world, I think you'd see a desire to love and please his father and love people. Undivided desire to love. And so he was hurt and open, but he wasn't ruled by the hurt and the emotions. He wasn't too messy or broken to pursue what the father had for him. Instead, he walked with a limp all the way to the finish line of the cross. He walked with a limp. Jesus knew what was coming. He told Judas, do what you gotta do and do it fast. Do you know what Judas was about to do? Send him to his death. Jesus said, go do it quick. Who does that? Who does that? If somebody's coming to my house to kill me and I know about it, I'm getting out of there. Quick. And Jesus is like, go do it, Judas. Judas was a traitor, but he was still Jesus' traitor. So, Jesus is the troubled and trusting Messiah. He is the troubled and trusting Messiah. How did he do it? So, Judas, we're, by the, at the pace that we're going, we'll get to the story in the three or four years. But at, at a certain point, <laughs> at a certain point, Judas actually comes back and picks him up. And so we're going to look at that. There's a whole lot that happens in between. The story of John, the, the Gospel of John, it, it zooms in dramatically on the last week of Jesus' life. It slows way, way down because the stuff that happens in that last week is super important. And so Jesus, in Mark 14, 32 to 36, we see him about to be betrayed. And he's praying in the garden. Very famous scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. He told his disciples, verse 32, they came to a place called Gethsemane and he told his disciples, sit here while I pray. So he took Peter, James, John with him 
And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. To the point of death. Maybe you've felt that way at some point in your life. I am grieved to the point of death. Jesus gets it. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther. Jesus fell to the ground. The king of glory fell. He was so deeply troubled and grieved. He collapsed and prayed that the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. And then what does he say? Not what I will, but what you will. As if to say, my emotions are real, but they're not ultimate. They don't rule me. The troubled and trusting Messiah. He was not ruled by his emotions. He was not figuring stuff out on his own. He was not self-willed. He was not pushing through his personal agenda without submitting to the Father's plan. He said, not my will, but yours. Jesus was troubled and yet trusting in Gethsemane. And if you know the story, you know that it got, got to the point where he was sweating blood. He was under such intense agony. For what? For our sin. For us. Because he loves us. He took him all the way to the cross. Here's the thing. His troubles hardly culminated in Gethsemane. They continued on. He went to the cross. When Jesus was on the cross, uh, there was, there's this scene where he is He's dying for the sins of the world. He's hanging. And what's going on around him? People are talking. Do you guys know what people were saying? They were saying, they were, they were hurling insults at him. They were mocking him. Do you know what Jesus says in the midst of that? He says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me or forsaken me? Do you guys know where that comes from? He's actually quoting a psalm. Psalm 22, which I think we've got some of the verses up here on the screen. Psalm 22, verses one to two. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Who wrote this? David. Long before Jesus was born. But Jesus saw himself in this story. He was bringing this story to completion. He had been, yeah, we'll just read it. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. Can you imagine God, Jesus saying, you're not answering me. He was troubled. He cried out honestly, God, where are you? I can't see you. But that's not where the story ends. Psalm 22, we're gonna skip all the way down to verse 24 to 28. It says this. He has not despised or abhorred the torment of the oppressed, he being God. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. So Jesus was troubled, he cried out honestly, and he was heard. And then it says, I will praise in the great assembly because of you. And here's the key, here's the trust. I will fulfill my vows. So this is Jesus trusting all the way to his death. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. And then verse 26. The humble will be eaten, be satisfied. This is where we come in. This is welcome to the story. The humble will be satisfied. 
Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. King Jesus. He's ruling and he's reigning. Even in the most difficult of circumstances, Jesus knew the way. It cost him his life. Yet God raised him from the dead. And that's the promise. That's your hope too. If you put your faith in Jesus, your hope is not in your circumstances changing today, but it's in the new life that Jesus is going to bring as we embrace his gospel. King Jesus. King Jesus. King Jesus. He is ruling and reigning today. And his kingdom is extending. It's going out. One day, everything will be under his rule and reign. We don't see that yet. We know that because the world is still broken. There's still sin. We haven't been glorified yet. We still lose it with our kids. We still lie. We still sin. We still, you know, all of it. But one day, he's going to bring his, his kingdom rule, rule to a culmination. And so how should we live our life if this is true? How should we live our life? How do we trust him? Romans 8, 31, I'm going to read these verses quickly. The believers triumph. What are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also not grant, how will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? He's the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He's at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And here's the key to our troubles, our despair, our affliction, the marriage that's faltering, the child that's wandering, the dead-end job, whatever it is, the finances that just feel like they're... Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? None of it. As it's written, because of you... We are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all of these things we are more than conquerors. You can say it. Conquerors. I think it's on the screen. Yeah. Conquerors through him who loved us. Man, how would your life change if you believed that you're a conqueror? That you are, it's okay to limp to the finish line, but to know that Jesus is walking with you all the way to the end, limping too. What troubles would you bring to him? Is there an area of your life that you're currently managing on your own that you would actually entrust to him? A health issue, a body image issue, maybe an addiction to food or drink that's consuming your life, or a savings or an investment account that's become untouchable, a golden calf in your life, a painful relationship that, tend, that makes you want to lash out or shut down, or job that leaves you feeling despair, that leaves you despairing, or on the flip side, a job that's become more central to you than Jesus himself. It's more important to your identity. A marriage that's hurting, it needs Jesus to lovingly redeem and reign over it. Or shame. I got this kind of like, as I was prepping, I got kind of this sense of like, there might be someone here, you have like shame in your life that feels like it's like a chokehold, leaves you without air. When you know you need to unpack so that you can heal and be restored by him. 
Or maybe you're just angry at the way life is going. It's different. It's harder than you thought. Instead of confessing your troubles, you try to control things and it hasn't worked. You can tell him and begin to trust him today. How might he be calling you to trust him today? So, quickly, as I was prepping for this message, I got a sense that I should, that it would be helpful for me to kind of open up about what it's looked like for me to trust Jesus with different areas of my life. And the idea behind this, it's not to flex, it's to let you, to let you see my life so that you can follow me as I follow Jesus. And there's not a lot of, if I was to flex, you wouldn't be impressed. So, I think there's, there's a few things. Jesus was really highlighting money. Money is something that we probably don't talk about enough. It's the biggest idol probably in our land. And Jesus has a lot to say about it. So, here's kind of like how my wife and I, we figured out our finances. Well, let me, let me start by saying, when I started to follow Jesus, I gave this much. It's not a three, it's a zero. Zero dollars. So I started off at lots of room to grow. And as, as I started to follow him, I would have these bursts, these, these occasional moments where I'd, I'd write a check. I'd feel inspired on a Sunday and write a check um, that felt like sacrificial and generous, and it was for me at the time. And then nothing. There was no consistency, no proportionality in my giving. Then I like, started supporting a radio ministry, and my local church giving was still zero. Uh, I supported, like, I supported the radio ministry for $25 a month, which I think was about a quarter of a percent of my income. I didn't actually calculate that, but you know what I mean. Very small. Um, over the course of time, Jesus started to get a hold of my heart. And I started to realize the gospel is about one thing in a sense, about many things, but if it's about nothing else, it's about generosity. He who was rich became poor for me so that I who am poor can become rich. And that touches and liberates and frees every area of my life. And so I went from zero. Heather and I got married and we had a lot of debt. So it was, a, it was complex. So if your financial situation is complex, I get it. We had student debts. We had undergrad, grad, I think one or two car payments. So we were, it was tough. It was tough to give. And so we made a decision at that point that we felt like in light of how God had generously given us all things to enjoy that we were going to give even if it hurt. So we gave. I think it came out to like 6 or 7%. This might make you uncomfortable to talk about percentages. I don't care that much about percentages. It's about the heart. And hopefully a movement of God getting more and more of your heart. And there's his, the way I use my money reflects the way he has generously entrusted me and given me everything to enjoy. Does that make sense? Then uh, we, we had an interesting thing happen. Heather got pregnant one of three times. Uh, so the first time, and she stopped working. We made a decision. We felt like I was calling us into a season of, of having her be at home to raise our children. So we halved our income, and we had a decision to make. What are we going to do with our giving? And I'm not suggesting this for everybody, but we decided that we weren't going to change it. So our giving went up to 10%. Again, this isn't a flex. I'm just sharing with you guys what is possible. As the, and we didn't make much money. 
and we are not superheroes. We are broken, scared people just like you. Seriously, we have fears and anxieties. You can ask other later. She'll tell you all about them. I'll tell you a little bit about mine. I didn't know, how am I going to provide for my children? And the truth is, we weren't giving like recklessly to the point where we would not be able to pay the bills because that's just silly. But we gave until it hurt. It was not comfortable. And this is kind of how it's continued on. And the truth is, I've even, even like, even thinking about this message, it got me thinking, like, I think we need to up to our giving. So there's this, like, periodic, ongoing check of my heart. Where am I at? God, what are you calling us to give? Again, all of it because of what he's given us. Not to pump or flex, not to show how amazing we are. It's literally like, how amazing is Jesus? God spared not even his own son for me. What do I want my giving to look like for him, for his kingdom purposes? Is this making sense? Okay. Relationships. I'll try to move these very quickly. I think that was the longest one. Made a decision to view people as worthy of love and sacrifice. This is how we trust God with relationships. Whether they're convenient, easy, or hard, we press into them. And we have hard conversations when we have to. I'm not perfect at this at all. In fact, I stand before you as a man who's probably bypassed one too many hard conversations that I should have had. And I'm not proud of that. I'm going to have to give God an account for those conversations one day of how I've led my life. But right now, what that looks like is, is crying out to God, God, help me to love people the way you loved me. Help me to actually have the hard conversations to love them. There was a group of people up here who were talking, who, who were, became members. And I don't know if you noticed this, but one of the things that Tom mentioned was like loving confrontation. There's a, some of you like confrontation, which I would say, check yourself. If you like it that much, may not be a good thing. Uh, however, if you're like me, you're terrified of it. Terrified of what people will think, of how people react and respond. And the truth is, like, that's not how Jesus treated me. And I no longer want that to dominate. So I'm going to fight it through, conf- through confession and repentance. I actually want love and honor to permeate my relationships and truth, truth and grace. Quickly, career. What does it look like to trust God with, the, with, with my career? Uh, we've made a decision that calling is more important than money or status or security. I'm a pastor because I believe God has called me to do it. It has led to pushback at times from people in my life, and it's not been easy. But that's his call, and it took years to materialize, years I struggled through. I anguished at job, a job I didn't like. I got passed over for promotion after promotion after promotion, just wondering, God, where are you? What are you doing? I have this desire to serve you in this way, I think you've given it to me. Where are you? The store seems closed. But nevertheless, like I felt like it was just, it was important to simply trust him with whatever I had in front of me, with every decision, with every opportunity. And he opened the door in his time and his way. By the way, you can remove pastor from the equation. If I was really good with numbers and I like spreadsheets, maybe to be an accountant, to love and serve people, that's fine too. Pastor is not a more holy or important role. It's just one role of many. Uh, Family. 
God's given me a wife and three children. He wants me to love them and disciple them and grow with them, alongside them as a learner. Therefore, in my home, what it looks like to trust God is that I confess my sin regularly. I confront how selfish I can be as a husband and a father. I pray and ask God for forgiveness and help pretty much every day. My kids hear, I'm sorry, the way I talked to you or behaved wasn't loving. That's not what Jesus is like. Do you forgive me? They hear that regularly, multiple times a week. I'm not bragging. I hate that I sin and hurt them. I hate it. If I could, make it, if I could wave a wand and make it disappear, I would today. Nevertheless, even in that, I'm called to trust him. That he's working out his plan for me and for my family and it involves me humbling myself regularly, not being the superhero of the family, but a broken man in need of Jesus. Lastly, my role in the church. Sometimes I struggle with my role at the church. I feel clumsy up here with a mic in my hand. Tom mentioned feeling self-conscious. Like I have a need to perform and prove myself. My role brings so much danger. Spiritual pride when things are going well and despair and depression when they're not. Not to say that that's not true in your life, but it is a special weight as a a pastor that I carry because I have to give an account for you. Trusting God with this role looks like regularly assessing what am I doing and why? Is it about me or is it about him? It means being open to receiving critique from others. That is not easy. But I am open. So if and when you have critiques, bring them, please. I need them. It looks like taking feedback seriously and prayerfully asking Jesus how to change. It means I'm entitled to nothing. I'm not entitled to this. I'm not. But I can be grateful for everything. It means that grace is a gift. It means that I get to remember and really believe that playing a role in God's kingdom is a joke in the sense of how good it is. Like I was a wandering sheep, lost, hurting, broken, aimless, with no hope in the world. And Jesus plucked me out of that, out of darkness into light. I'm not going back into the darkness. That's what Judas did, and I don't want to do that. Trusting God with my role means I get to savor every moment I'm with people, because one day he may call me or them for new kingdom work. This is the way. Has anybody watched The Mandalorian? This is the way. This is the way of Jesus. Troubled, trusting. Tender, tough. How many T words can we come up with? Troubled, trusting, tender, tough. How How would you follow Jesus today if you knew that because of his victory, you can't lose? I'm gonna ask you guys to stand up. I'm gonna call the band up. I'm going to ask just a few questions and I'll get out of here. Okay. How would you follow Jesus today and trust him if you knew that his victory was your victory? If you knew that this thing ends in glory for you? that there's nothing that can get in the way of his love for you? Would you confess sin even if it made you look bad? Would you accept the consequences of your sin knowing that even if you are brought low, we have a savior who comes down to wash your feet and cleanse everybody who humbles themselves? 
If you knew that you couldn't lose, would you have the courage to ask someone to forgive you, someone you've hurt? Would you forgive those who have wronged you, just like he's forgiven you? Is there a risk that you're currently afraid to take that you feel like God might be calling you to take? Maybe it's jumping into a gospel community. Maybe it's, maybe God's been putting leadership on your heart and you know you need to have a conversation about that. Maybe there's someone that you're drawn to that you feel like God might be saying, spend time with this person, get to know them, love them. Man, what if, what if we were a people who were convinced that in the midst of the hard stuff, in the midst of everything that we go through, God's at work bringing out his loving purposes and plans for our lives? Would you be freed up to trust him and bring him your troubles? I'm just going to finish with this question. What is God putting on your heart right now? What is he bringing to your attention? And I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing. Um, Father, thank you for this morning and for what you're doing in the room. I ask that you would help clarify, crystallize things for everybody in the room, that everybody would have a choice today. If there's an area of their life that you want to bring healing and wholeness to, and everybody has a choice to trust you with it, even if it's troubling, or to not. God, and I pray that sovereignly, like by your grace and mercy, that you would give us the courage, the faith, the trust to know that in the end, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, and so we don't have to be afraid. Even if death, death itself has lost its sting, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? It's gone. So, Father, I pray, meet with us right now. Speak to us, even in this time. I pray that we'd have honest, genuine worship for Jesus, our trusting and troubled Savior who died for us and was raised for us. In your name we pray.